Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 170. And we have quite a crazy one for you guys today. This case is truly unbelievable from start to finish. It is such a roller coaster, and it plays out almost like a movie. Like some of the parts of it, it's just like picturing it in your head happening. You almost can't wrap your mind around it because it's something that most of us haven't been through, hopefully. Yeah. A lot of you out there haven't been through something like this or know someone who has. But actually, today, Corelli is joining us, and something very similar happened to her second cousin. So, yeah, she's going to be giving us a little bit of insight today. Janelle is out. She's just going through some stuff in her personal life and needed a break. So, yeah. Today, we are talking about the kidnapping of Eduardo Valseca. And this one, wow. Where'd you find this? I had uh, never I heard of it. Reddit actually is where I found oh. it. I was looking at kidnapping cases, different different ones out there. And this one really caught my eye because, A, I feel like we haven't covered a lot of cases out of Mexico. Mm-hmm. So I figured it'd be good to cover some cases out there because there's so many, so, so many, many crazy stories in Mexico. I mean, yeah. there's I can make a huge list of them. And this one was specifically interesting to me because of just how this whole thing plays out and and it, it like like we said before it's like so many twists and turns and it's really hard to believe that he went through all the things mm-hmm. that he did you know in order to just survive and you know come out the other side so it's it's an inspirational story as much as it is a, a you know a story of of true crime i guess you mm-hmm. could say but before we jump into the story I wanted to remind everybody that my new sleep podcast, Planet Sleep, is now out. The first episode dropped on Monday, and it is about the Amazon rainforest. I'm very excited for you all to hear it. So if you haven't gone over to the Planet Sleep YouTube channel, uh, which will actually be posting a video version of the show without me in it, it's more of a you know something to just help you mm-hmm. watch to fall asleep. Nice um, visuals. Some very beautiful visuals in it. Uh, you can watch and listen to it there, or obviously you can listen to it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, but yeah, check it out. See if it's uh, see what you think of it. I'm really excited about it. And yeah, what I really love about it is that it has nature sounds embedded throughout it. That's just the most relaxing thing to me, even more so than music. So it's kind of like a nice mix. Yeah, that's it's what I tried. Really to do. beautifully done. Yeah, I really tried to because I mean everybody has different preferences as to what you know calms them or helps them fall asleep so i wanted to kind of intermix a bunch of different things and have some soothing music and then you know kind of go between rainfall to water yeah you know running down a stream to hearing birds chirping in the background but nothing too too obnoxious so and it's something that you can sit and enjoy just meditatively as well absolutely just yeah relax. it's not just for falling asleep it could Mm-mm. just be for you know if you're at work and you're just trying to have something calming on to listen to or yeah you want to just close your eyes on your lunch break and be whisked off to the Amazon rainforest for a bit. It's so good. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I'm very excited about it. So yeah, we'll put links for it below if you haven't checked it out yet. But but yeah, we've got that going on. We also launched our new flavors of CBD. Yes. Watermelon is out. Watermelon haze. It's so good. It is so good. Yeah, it's probably my favorite uh, flavor of oil we've come out with. I don't know. I love our pineapple so much that I might, that might still be my favorite, but it's so, so good. You can smell it outside of the bottle when it's packed and sealed and everything. It's that potent. 
It's yeah, really good. It's really good stuff. So we've got that in our CBD oils and our CBD wax. So definitely check that out at higherlevelwellness.com. But yeah, let's go ahead and get into the episode. This episode of Mile Higher Podcast is brought to you by Canva, Headspace, Modern Fertility, Function of Beauty, and Halo Collar. So today, for the most part, we are going to be talking about two people, Jane and Eduardo. So we're going to talk about how they met first. They met in spring of 1992. Jane was 25 years old, and she was at Sutton Place Gourmet in Bethesda, Maryland. She was making a call from a payphone outside. And when she was in the parking lot, she had a chance encounter with a handsome, charismatic man named Eduardo Garcia Valseca. And their attraction was immediate. Later, they would both say that it was love at first sight, and they were a very cute couple. Eduardo was 18 years older than Jane, but their age difference never mattered to them. The first day they met, they talked for nearly an hour, and they decided that they wanted to see each other again, so they made plans for the next night for dinner. Jane learned that Eduardo's father, Jose Garcia Valseca, had been a newspaper tycoon in Mexico, and by the 1930s, he had built his business into an empire, founding over 40 newspapers in Mexico and running the business from a luxury Pullman train car that he owned. But their business had gone under. Their fortune was gone, and all that was left for Eduardo to inherit was the train car. Eduardo was an art dealer and an investor from Mexico City. He grew up in Guanajuato, Mexico, and by the time he met Jane, he had been living in the United States for eight years. Jane told him about her work as an actress, actually. She had been in a lot of commercials and landed a few small roles on soap operas and movies. By her mid-20s, she had changed career paths and was working in real estate, though. And their relationship was a whirlwind. On one of their first dates, Eduardo took Jane to Mexico for a ride on his luxury train car. And they fell in love fast. And just three months after meeting, they knew they wanted to spend their lives together. So they got married on July 9th, 1994, and started shopping for houses in Mexico. Jane fell in love with a charming city in central Mexico, San Miguel de Allende, Guanajuato. And it was a beautiful place, the kind of place that Jane had always dreamed of living. People were strolling along cobblestone lanes. There are beautiful colors everywhere, beautiful architecture. There's a town square. Life there just seemed surreal. And Jane knew right away that she wanted to raise their family there. So they bought a thousand acre ranch just outside of the city and put everything they had into making it their own because it was just bare bones, like truly. Yeah, they had to really like, build it from the ground up. Yeah, they did. There was a riding ring where Eduardo could take his prized Spanish horses and Jane started a small cactus farm as well. There was a railroad track that ran through the property as well. So they arranged for Eduardo's train car to be moved there, which was an idyllic symbol of their fairy tale life together. They made a living in real estate, fixing up and selling old houses. And they had three children, Fernando, Emiliano, and Naya. Jane was very passionate about Waldorf education, which is a really interesting form of education. My sister worked in it for a bit as like a. They're all about like assistant, but creativity and art, and nature, mm-hmm. and really like letting your creative juices flow. Yeah, it's described as a progressive educational philosophy that teaches through nature and art. So they ended up donating part of their property and established a Waldorf school just a half a mile from their home. And for 15 years, they lived on the ranch, raised their family, became prominent and loved members of their community and worked on the school. So they were really living a dream life. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The beautiful property that they're Mm -hmm. on. I mean, a thousand acres. That's a lot of land. Yeah. It also goes to show what kind of people they are, like the fact that they donated part of their land to build a school at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's 
that's very generous and obviously they really cared about children and the children in the area not only their own kids but you know kind of uplifting their community all around them which i I think is really cool yeah there was a dateline episode on this case and we were able to watch some of it on youtube because dateline takes like everything down i don't know why they it's really unhelpful especially for the families who have their stories out there and are hoping for exposure and then they hide them but anyway uh we were able to watch clips little clips uploaded to youtube on the dateline and just hearing their interviews really gives you a sense of who these people were they're really seem like down to earth people yeah just incredible salt of the earth people that just Mm -hmm. yeah love their kids love life wanted a simple but fulfilling life yeah yeah, it's just crazy what ends up happening to yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, sadly, all that kind of changed on June 13th, 2007. So on the morning of Wednesday, June 13th, 2007, it was bright and sunny, and it was two weeks before summer vacation, and the kids were all in high spirits. I mean, yeah, summer's about to be here, mm-hmm. about to have time off, you know, be able to do things as a family, and all that good stuff. As they did every day, Jane and Eduardo loaded their two youngest kids into the family Jeep, and drove them to school while singing songs in Spanish. Their oldest son, Fernando, would ride out ahead of them on his four-wheeler. That's a fun way to get to school. It's pretty cool. And when they get to school, Jane would walk the kids inside while Eduardo stayed in the Jeep listening to music. And as she walked toward the school, Jane noticed a car she didn't recognize. It was a compact car, a light blue Ford. She also didn't recognize the driver either. He was wearing a fisherman's hat and glasses. She and Eduardo knew all the parents, teachers, and administrators at the school, so it was very odd to see a stranger there. Before she left, she stopped in the office and asked the school administrator who that man was, thinking maybe he was a prospective parent you know, who needed help or was just maybe scoping out the school. But the administrator didn't know why this particular man was there. As Jane walked back to the Jeep, the man made eye contact with her and smiled. So she smiled back. Eduardo and her pulled out of the parking lot to head home, and the man in the light blue Ford followed them. Then a pickup truck appeared behind them on the road, speeding to catch up with their Jeep. The driver gave them an odd look, which obviously something about him made both of them feel very uneasy. And as they looked up ahead, they saw several vehicles on the road leading to their ranch. The man in the Ford had raced ahead, and they saw the small blue car out in the distance. An SUV suddenly cut them off and swerved in front of them, while the truck was wedging them in from the side. Eduardo looked concerned, and he said, something is definitely not right. What is this guy doing? The SUV came to a sudden stop, and as Eduardo slammed on the brakes, the pickup truck fell back and crashed into them from behind. And at that point, they were trapped. That's so scary. Yeah, just just being driving along the road, and all of a mm-hmm. sudden these cars converge on Normal you. Normal day, middle trap of the you daylight, in. just leaving from a school. Just thinking like what runs through your mind in that moment, like what's about to happen. A man jumped out of the vehicle in the front and he was wearing a mask and dark sunglasses and had a hammer and a handgun, one in each hand. He stepped up to the driver's side of the Jeep, smashed the window, and bashed Eduardo in the head. He screamed out in pain as blood sprayed everywhere. Another man smashed Jane's window and he was wearing the exact same thing as the other guy. He was also carrying the same weapons. It felt like glass was suddenly exploding all around them. Everything seemed to happen in the blink of an eye, and there was no time to process anything. Jane was screaming as the man grabbed her, and she realized that these people wanted to kill them. She thrashed and kicked as she was dragged out of the car onto the ground. The struggle continued, and at one point, Jane grabbed onto a barbed wire fence along the road. 
and the wire cut through the skin of her finger all the way down to the bone. Ugh. If you've ever touched barbed wire before, it's, no. it is sharp and it hurts. She'd even register the pain as she continued struggling for her life. The man put his gun to her forehead and told her to get up. And she said, please don't kill me. I have three children. The men then put thick pillowcases over their heads and dragged Jane and Eduardo into the SUV. Jane smelled the strong scent of detergent on the pillowcase, and she realized she had to pay attention to every detail from this point on. She reached over and touched Eduardo's shoulder. It was slick with blood, and she was suddenly very aware that her finger was nearly sliced clean off. Eduardo was hysterical, and Jane thought he probably had a concussion. One of the men kept yelling at him to shut up, or he'd hit him again. There was so much blood, and Jane was worried he might bleed to death. So she comforted him by saying, God is all-powerful in Spanish. They weren't religious people, but at that moment she didn't know what else to do. She also hoped the men would hear her and let them go, or at least keep them alive. They couldn't see anything with the pillowcases on their heads, but they heard the sound of duct tape being ripped. One of the men grabbed Jane's wrists and wrapped them in tape. He did the same to her ankles, and while this was happening, she tried to talk to Eduardo, but the man stopped her, pressing his fingers on her lips. It was a gentle gesture, and Jane thought maybe she could reason with them. So she asked the guy if he had any children. He didn't answer her. He just put his fingers back over her lips and then patted her three times on the stomach. For the first time since being dragged from the Jeep, she thought maybe they would make it through this alive. Once they were blindfolded and bound, the men got into the front seat and the SUV started moving. As they took off, a bus was driving behind them. Fernando, Eduardo and Jane's 12-year-old son, was on that bus with his class. That's unbelievable. How crazy. He had no idea what was happening in front of him. Yeah. He noticed the two large vehicles up ahead and they were speeding down the road. And he thought it was strange to see the vehicles that size going so fast. And while watching this, he had no idea that his parents were bound and duct taped inside. From the back seat of the SUV, Jane tried her best to calm down. And she tried to memorize every turn and bump in the road, thinking that she might need to retrace the route. The vehicle veered onto the highway towards San Miguel and made a sharp right turn and came to a sudden stop. The door swung open and Eduardo was dragged out and thrown into a different vehicle. Jane waited for her turn, expecting her door to whip open at any second, but it never did. She heard the men dragging Eduardo and the slamming car doors and she heard the engine start. She pushed the pillowcase up over her face to see what was happening and she watched as the vehicle drove off with her husband. She forced herself to focus on the license plate number, UPC5152, and she said that over and over again to make sure she didn't forget it. Smart. Seriously. At this point, she was alone, and her wrists and ankles were tightly bound, and her husband was gone. Jane managed to get the door open and fell out on the road, and she saw that she was near the highway. All she could do, though, was hop down the road in her flip-flops and hope someone would stop to help her. Before we get into what happens next, we're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back. So now Jane is just on the side of the road, obviously happy to be released from these men, but so terrified about where her husband could possibly be going. And she had no way to get help, but she knew she had to get help as soon as possible. So after a few minutes of her just walking along the road in her flip-flops, an older man pulled over to the side of the road and stepped out. Jane told him that she needed to call the police, but this man didn't have a cell phone. All he had in his vehicle was a machete, which he was carrying with him. So he stayed with her to protect her. 
And they waited as car after car just drove by. And no one was stopping because she's standing on the side of the road, covered in blood, hopping around. And meanwhile, there's this man next to her holding a machete. So a lot of people were freaked out and didn't want to stop. But eventually she saw a bus coming towards them and she decided enough was enough. And so she stepped right out in front of it, hoping that the driver stopped. And he did. But no one on board the bus had a cell phone. The bus driver flagged down a cab, knowing that Jane could use the radio to call for help. But there was a problem with this plan, because as I'm sure many of you know, in Mexico, it's just common knowledge that the police are very corrupt and are often paid off by criminal organizations to make sure that they are protected. So you don't really know if you can actually get help from them. But Jane was a white woman from America. Calling the police seemed like the only logical thing to do. But most people, when they have someone go missing or kidnapped in Mexico, they won't even call the police because it doesn't always help. And so there are thousands of unreported missing persons cases in Mexico. And kidnappings, yeah. Yeah, and they don't feel that they can actually go to the police. Which is, uh, especially for us living in the U.S., is a very uneasy feeling for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, it's hard to imagine living in a world like that. Jane thought that when she called the police, they would seal off the perimeter, catch the bad guys, and get her husband back. But unfortunately, that is not what happened. When officers arrived, they pulled the duct tape off of her ankles and wrists and took her back to her Jeep where she and Eduardo were first abducted. The Jeep was still there, sitting on the side of the road, and they found a note left by the kidnappers. And the note read, Senora Jane, we have Eduardo. Go home and open the following email address with the following password. This short note really spoke volumes. I mean, they knew her name. They spelled it correctly with a Y, even though the more common spelling of it is J-A-N-E. Jane realized that this was not a random kidnapping. They had been targeted and stalked. And they found a hammer on the seat of the Jeep. And this is actually the calling card of the EPR, a fringe Marxist political group. The hammer was also a signal to the police to not investigate this crime. Kidnapping people for ransom is a common criminal activity in Mexico. It happens literally all the time. So, yeah, my um, this is super, super common in Mexico. Um, I have a family member that this happened to. Um, my dad's family, a lot of them live in um, Juarez, which is really close to the border um, of like El Paso and mm-hmm. El Paso, Texas. Yeah. So my dad's family, um, they're all kind of known in, in Juarez. Um, they're all teachers and Mm-hmm. This this person's mom was a dean. I don't even know what like what it's called in mm-hmm. Spanish, but they're like he, she was very high up, and um, this part of the family is a little bit more wealthy, and so they were targeted. They were they were definitely targeted, and these groups kind of do they do look for you know people like Eduardo yeah. and Jane, where they are like very well known and they're very like respected people mm-hmm. that um, someone is going to care about exactly. So with my with this family member. Um, what happened was the, the my I guess it was I don't personally know him or anything. Um, but you think he's your second cousin? I think he's my second cousin. My yeah. my dad can't. Everybody's a primo in Mexico, <laughs> so um, they kidnapped him. They um, I I don't remember exactly how the story goes. I don't know all the details, obviously. But um, when they kidnapped him, they sent a ransom note to the family, obviously, mm-hmm. and, were, and they were asking for a million U.S. dollars. A and million. they always ask for U.S. U.S. dollars. The conversion is going to be mm-hmm. a exactly. lot more for them in, exactly. in Mexican money. Yeah. So yeah, so they always ask for, for Mexican or for American dollars. Um, 
but yeah, no. So thankfully with, with him, um, it, he wasn't, he wasn't kidnapped for very long. Mm-hmm. Um, he, they did where they were able to like fork up the money or whatever. Wow. Um, and he was only gone for four days, thankfully. And he's, he was safe. Um, and everything was okay, but it's still, it's so scary. This is like, yeah. you don't, you don't really think this is going to happen, mm-hmm. but it happened, it happens so much. And there All are the groups time. in Mexico that literally just mm-hmm. kidnap people. It's like, like this their is, career. It, it is literally their career. When did this yeah. happen? Um, oh my gosh. I was told the story like 10 years ago. So like maybe like 10, 15 years ago, I was really young when my dad told me. That's um, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is still happening today. I mean, I actually just read a story today about an LA firefighter that would go down to Baja, uh, Mexico mm-hmm. and, uh, Rosarita, I think Rosarito, I think, believe is what it's called. Mm. And he was, he had like kids, you know, that live in California and stuff. And he had a condo down in Mexico and he was, uh, he would drive his Harley Davidson motorcycle across. And a lot of people are saying that it's a really bad idea to be American and like draw attention to yourself like that. And he ended up getting kidnapped Wow. And was gone for a couple of months, and they ended up finding his body burned, uh, burned remains. That's and, so scary. And this was like last year. So this yeah. is something that happens yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. So when Jane got home that day, she immediately started making calls. She knew she needed help from somebody, and she would take it from anyone who was offering it. So one of her first calls was to Eduardo's sister. She was friends with a family who had gone through a kidnapping as well. She learned that she had to make a choice between working with the state police, the federal police, or a private consultant, which is obviously going to cost a lot of money. She talked to law enforcement officials in the United States and agents in the FBI, but they couldn't help her unless Mexico requested it. Eventually, she got in touch with the top experts in the country on cases like this. They asked her specific questions about the kidnapping and determined that this was a sophisticated operation. To hire a private consultant would cost at least $2,500 a day plus expenses, which is way more than she could afford. Her best bet was to work with Mexico's federal police, the AFI, as they're known. The AFI is modeled after the FBI and was created to fight corruption and investigate organized crime in Mexico. So Eduardo's case definitely fell under their jurisdiction. So they told her they were going to be sending an agent to her home and an undercover negotiator who would help her communicate with the kidnappers and negotiate this ransom. So all Jane can do is wait and hope that they really do help her. But meanwhile, she has three kids who are freaking out, wondering where their dad is. So she knew she couldn't tell her seven-year-old or her six-year-old that that was just way too much for them to wrap their mind around, and it would be just terrifying, probably give them nightmares. And Yeah, I mean, how do you even begin to tell a kid? that this has happened yeah, or explain young, what you've just been through. Right. So they told the two youngest that Eduardo was on a business trip, but Fernando was 12 and she felt like she really needed him as well. And he should know what was going on. So he, you know, he's old enough too to just figure it out by the way everyone is acting. So she sat down with him and told him that Eduardo had been kidnapped that morning. As Fernando tried to process what his mom was saying, he realized that, the vehicles he saw that morning in front of the bus were driven by the people who had his father. But he knew he had to stay strong for his mom. She was going to need his support now. But as soon as he could, he went to his favorite spot on the ranch and just sobbed alone. Next, Jane had to call her mother, who was also named Jane, but without the Y. And she lived on her own house on the ranch for most of the year. But at this point, she was at home in Virginia. So when she heard what happened, she immediately packed her bags and headed to Mexico to support her daughter and her grandchildren. 
Jane anxiously waited for the AFI agent to arrive. Their plan was for him to come and stay at the ranch so that he could help her answer the email from the kidnappers in real time and get Eduardo back as fast as possible. Jane comforted herself with the thought over the next 24 hours that maybe this would all be over soon. Then, at 3 in the morning, the phone rang. It was the agent, and he had taken a bus from Mexico City and needed a ride to get out to their ranch. Which obviously, Jane was not expecting this. She was in fact expecting a large, intimidating man to drive up in a bulletproof SUV, but this guy didn't even have a car. When she arrived to pick him up, she was very surprised at how young he looked. He was a skinny guy dressed in casual clothes. He had on a baseball cap and glasses and was carrying a backpack. She would have guessed he was a 20-year-old college student, not an undercover federal agent. The first thing she asked him was, do you have a gun? And when he said he wasn't armed, he could tell that she was shocked. She soon learned that she had it all wrong. That reason for this guy coming was to keep this a discreet operation because people were watching her. And she didn't want an intimidating man with a gun around. They needed the kidnappers to remain calm in order to keep Eduardo safe. And it turned out that this agent was actually older than he looked. He was an experienced hostage negotiator and all he needed to help her was his laptop. His identity is a federal secret to this day and no one outside of their close circle knows what he looks like. He was constantly online with a team of agents in Mexico City who advised him on strategy. They had worked on as many as 25 kidnappings at a time. He told Jane that the kidnappers had probably been casing their ranch for several months. As she thought back over the previous weeks, she remembered strange things that kept happening. Vehicles parked along the road that they didn't recognize and cigarette butts thrown in the bushes. He also told her if this is the work of the EPR, it wasn't going to be over in 24 hours. In fact, it wouldn't be over for days or even weeks. That this was likely going to go on for at least several months. The closest thing to good news he could offer was that, as far as they knew, this group hadn't murdered any of the people they kidnapped. After hearing this, Jane knew eventually she'd have to tell her younger kids what was actually going on. And in fact, seven-year-old Emiliano already knew something bad was going on because he could just see it in his mother's eyes. And when she finally told them, Emiliano didn't believe her. He thought she was lying. Fernando stepped in in order to calm down his younger brother. Six-year-old Naya didn't understand the word kidnapped, and Jane had to explain that bad men had stolen their dad for money. How terrifying at that age. Oh, man. I don't even know what I would have thought at that age. So nightmarish. Yeah, literally nightmarish for sure. I mean, that's like, I feel like that's so many kids' fears Mm -hmm. is somebody like breaking into your house and like taking taking you. Or taking your family. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I'm sure that was just terrifying. Mm -hmm. They were also told that this was a secret and that they couldn't talk about it with anyone not even their friends. Eduardo was well-known in their community. He was actually an anti-poverty activist and a panelist on a local TV show. But the AFI agent said the media couldn't report on it, and everyone had to go on with life as usual. They were being watched, and it was way too risky to go public. One night, they built a bonfire, and the kids were outside with their grandmother saying prayers for their dad, when suddenly the agent signaled Jane, and she ordered everyone in the house immediately. Someone was out in the grass watching them, just steps away from where they were praying. Oh, (sighs) creepy. So, so scary. For five days after the kidnapping, Jane obsessively checked the Yahoo account the kidnappers had set up. And on the fifth day, an email finally arrived. It read, we hope that the miss got home okay. 
For the liberation of Eduardo, we demand an amount of eight million U.S. dollars. Eight million U.S. dollars. That's a lot. What the fuck? For anybody. That, yeah, where is she supposed to come up with this money? Yeah, what bank in you know San Miguel is going to have eight million U.S. dollars? And how is she going to get it? Yeah, from where? There was also detailed instructions that she had to follow in order to signal to them that she agreed to pay the ransom. She was told to put an ad in the Animals and Pets Classified section of the Universal newspaper. And the ad should read, Wanted, Chow Chow Puppy, Vaccinated with Full Pedigree, 8,000 Pesos. This was how they would get around the police, sending messages through the newspaper that couldn't be traced. But there was a problem. Jane didn't have $8 million. She didn't have anywhere close to that kind of money at all. All their wealth was in the property and in the ranch. And to liquefy their assets, she would need Eduardo, as there was nothing she could do on her own, because everything was in his name. She had no access to it. And it wasn't worth $8 million, even if she did. No, and this was Even if she could sell it, you know? Exactly. It's $8 million. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very hard number to reach. And the only thing she had access to was just their checking account that they used on a daily basis. Jane was sure that they were going to kill Eduardo, but the agent explained that this was a starting place in order to negotiate down from. So she placed the ad but changed the wording, and it read, We're very concerned for the Chow Chow's well-being. Your request is beyond my realistic economic possibilities. After seeing her ad in the paper, the kidnappers must have been angry, and they took it out on Eduardo. Because Eduardo was being kept in a small wooden box that was built against a concrete wall, and the inside was covered in dark carpet. This box was 80 inches long, which is barely enough space for him to lie down, and the width of it was only slightly wider than his shoulders. Think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. It's literally like being in a coffin. He had been stripped naked and given a bucket for a bathroom, which was rarely emptied, and a pillowcase to blindfold himself. When the kidnappers wanted to open the box, they would knock to signal Eduardo to put the pillowcase over his head and face the wall. He actually never saw their faces. And they probably, I'm guessing they do that so that the kidnappers... People handling him don't feel bad for him or read emotion on his face and they can just detach as much as possible. That and so that he can't describe them. Right. If they do let him go. That's true too. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, if they were planning to kill him, then they probably would have just been like whatever. So it's probably more that. To describe. Yeah. They don't want to be identified. Mm -hmm. So he's just in this box and they're playing extremely loud music too at all times. Because they're worried that he can possibly hear them. And they said anything that he they are talking about they'd have to kill him if he were to hear it so they're just blaring this extremely obnoxious loud music at all times yeah and there's actually a clip of eduardo talking about this experience you get used to the light day and night but one thing that you can never get used to is that loud music all the time that drives you crazy all he knew about these men though was their voices the man in charge spoke with an american accent which is interesting mm-hmm and the rest spoke fluent Spanish. He also wasn't allowed to speak at all, and all communication was done through handwritten notes. Not only did they play that music all day, but they put a bright light bulb above his head, which was kept on at all times in this box. Torture. Just torture. I can't even imagine an hour of that. They also only gave him enough water and food to keep him alive. He'd be given a small piece of fruit or salad, and on the rare occasions, they gave him an egg or chicken. And if he got the egg, he'd eat the whole thing, shell Mm -hmm. and all, and 
the chicken, he eat the chicken bones as well. That's how hungry he was. Just pure desperation. Yeah, literally starving to death. To get information from Eduardo, he was told that Jane had been kidnapped as well and was being kept nearby in a similar box. After they got what they needed, they revealed that Jane hadn't been kidnapped. He was told that he would be freed once Jane paid them the $8 million. Eduardo tried to tell them that they didn't have that kind of money, but they wouldn't listen. Eventually, they told him that his wife had actually moved on, and she had moved another man onto the ranch and didn't care about him anymore. She was selfish and kept all of his money for herself instead of saving him, so psychologically torturing him. Mm -hmm. Eduardo knew that these were all lies, but over time, as he grew weaker and more disoriented, he started to think there might be some truth to it. Maybe Jane assumed he was dead and had moved on. I mean, you couldn't help but think about that. Yeah, I mean, you were in that situation and the things that would go through your head. Yeah, just be. I mean, like you said, desperation sets in, and then Mm -hmm. you're just like, maybe that, maybe they're right. Maybe this is, you know, you start accepting that reality as Mm -hmm. truth. Yeah, when you're stuck in it, he would secretly count the days on small scraps of paper and try to hold on to hope. After the ad was published, Eduardo was severely beaten. And then they forced him to write a letter to Jane telling her how much he was suffering and that he couldn't handle the torture any longer. They emailed Jane a scanned copy of the letter covered in his blood. And after Jane read the letter, she had to start taking tranquilizers to deal with the stress. I truly cannot imagine being in her position. Like, what do you even do with yourself? Like, I mean, you have to take tranquilizers. You just like, you can't. Oh. Thinking about your loved one and the torture they're enduring, like it's just that it's is like that the hardest thing. Yeah, with their blood on it, that's Ugh. traumatized. It's so scary. That's so so scary. How do you function? How do you eat, sleep, do anything? She has no idea what they're what they're doing to him either. Yeah. Like there's blood on this for all. She probably thinks they're cutting his fingers off. They're mm-hmm. doing all these really heinous things to him, and he's just in agony and pain <sighs> while she's in this basically trying to just figure out what she can do i mean it's starting to seem like there's not much she can do while the love of her life is just suffering that's so awful jane knew that she was going to need to raise more money if she had any hope of saving eduardo she started selling everything that she could eduardo's prized spanish horses sheep rabbits machinery from the ranch but she was only able to raise about twenty thousand dollars a tiny fraction of what the kidnappers wanted. And seven-year-old Emiliano tried to give her his piggy bank to help save his father. It just breaks my heart. Jane felt like she was just falling apart. And to make matters worse, the kidnappers' latest threat was cutting off Eduardo's fingers and sending her them one at a time if she didn't come up with the money by a certain date. And this is something that they're known to do. When that date came and went, they told her that they were tired of her fooling around. They said that Eduardo had sent her a package and gave instructions on where to find it. And of course, she knew it wasn't going to be anything good in the package. So the agent actually sent someone to get the package. It was buried and wrapped in plastic. And when they opened it, they found a stack of IOUs signed by Eduardo. The kidnappers told her to use them to get a loan. Jane tried, but the IOUs were dismissed as forgeries. After she read the second letter written by Eduardo, she decided not to read any more. The negotiator read them for her, and she just looked long enough to verify Eduardo's handwriting. The emails came in once a week, like clockwork. They were either threats from the kidnappers or a letter from Eduardo. After each email, Jane followed the instructions and replied through the classified ad section. She was so stressed during all of this. 
All she could keep down was chicken broth, orange juice, herbal tea. She was barely sleeping and couldn't focus on anything. She was truly losing her mind. And the kids watched a home movie of Eduardo every day to help them cope. And there was even a clip of Eduardo blowing Jane a kiss, and she would go and watch that part of the video as well by herself. This went on for three months. Then the negotiator sat her down for a serious talk. The EPR was known for long-term kidnappings. The last kidnapped victim was kept for 22 months. So all of this might just be the beginning. She had to pull herself together. He told her to get back to her day-to-day life. She had to establish a routine or she was never going to survive this. After this meeting, Jane stopped wallowing, but she got mad. She started channeling her anger towards the people who were trying to destroy their lives and started taking action. She decided that she would beat them at their own game. She went back to her normal routine and went about her public life like nothing fazed her. She returned to work supporting the Waldorf School, and she planned celebrations for the holidays with the kids and for their birthdays as well. She started taking belly dancing classes as well and went out shopping. And when she was out with her daughter, she saw a man on a dirt bike following them. Another day, she was out at a shopping center, and she noticed a man with a mustache who was dressed in khaki camping gear, just like the kidnappers had been. The man was staring at her, and instead of looking away, she narrowed her gaze and stared right back at him. She knew that they were watching her, and knowing this kind of gave her a power over them. She started doing things purposely to unnerve them. She packed up moving boxes, covered furniture in bubble wrap to make it look like she was taking her kids back to the United States. She put the boxes and furniture in a warehouse on their property and left the doors open to make sure they saw it. She rented a moving truck and paraded it around the ranch, packing up furniture and boxes. If she could convince them that she was throwing in the towel and moving on with her life, maybe they'd agree to take that amount of money down and accept something that she could actually offer. The agent told her that she was making a mistake. She should follow the protocol. But Jane decided that she had nothing to lose by doing both. She continued to communicate through the newspaper ads and did everything else they asked her. But when she went out, she carried herself like she had nothing to lose. In the fourth month, the letters got even more graphic and intense. Eduardo said that they never let him out of that cage. He was starving to death and they were beating him twice a day. In emails to Jane, the kidnappers threatened to inject Eduardo with HIV-infected blood. They told him the same thing, and when they didn't get what they wanted, they actually started injecting him with the blood. They used random samples that weren't his blood type, and his arms swelled up, he had fever, chills, his body rejected the mismatched blood. He was in danger of going into multi-organ failure at this point. They threatened to shoot him unless she got her offer to seven figures, And they weren't bluffing. In the fifth month, one of the men held a gun just inches over Eduardo's leg and pulled the trigger. And 10 days later, they did the same thing to his left arm. They had told Eduardo that this was going to happen as another form of psychological torture. And it felt like an explosion inside of his body. Yeah, here's Eduardo explaining how Mm -hmm. it really felt in his own words. I could hear the the gun being prepared with a bullet going in, you know, when the I felt like it was a bomb inside my leg that exploded from the inside out. At this point, Eduardo wasn't even afraid of dying. He was afraid of living this nightmare every day. And he said if he had a way, a piece of glass, anything, he would have killed himself. 
And I understand. I would have probably done the same same, same thing. I mean, Absolutely. Tor- I mean, being tortured. And you don't know like if the there's going to be yeah. an end to it. Yeah. You know, so hopeless at some point. So they emailed Jane pictures of his gunshot wounds. There's some footage of the pictures that will overlay. And she was careful to shield her kids from the letters and pictures that were coming in. But Fernando wanted to know what was going on. He thought he was old enough to handle it. So he snuck onto the computer and opened the email himself. He saw the pictures of his dad with no clothing sitting in a box. He had duct tape over his eyes and was covered in blood. And to this day, Fernando wishes he had never seen those pictures. Soon, things escalated again. Jane could avoid reading the emails. She could even avoid the pictures, but she couldn't avoid a phone call. The negotiator had told her that when they started calling, the kidnappers would be vulgar and insulting, and they would say things to shock and horrify her just to make her upset and angry. He gave her responses to memorize and set up a dry erase board to prompt her during the call. Jane was prepared. There was nothing they could say that would rattle her. But when the phone rang, It wasn't the kidnappers on the other line. It was her husband. He was clearly reading a script, and he sounded weak and robotic, getting the words out with no inflection. But the words he said still stung. He accused her of doing nothing to save him, and he called her names and insulted her, saying, You're going to let them kill me so you can keep my money. You're such a bitch. And then he started asking her questions. She would get her next set of instructions from her husband. The agent told her to relax. She could do this. She answered the questions and got the information she needed, and they were both playing a part. Then she changed her tone and said, I love you with all my heart. And she told him that the kids missed him, and she was going to do everything she could to get him back. At this point, Eduardo started sobbing and said he loved her too. And as soon as he went off script, the call dropped. By that Christmas, they were starting to lose hope, and for the first time, Fernando accepted that he was never going to see his father again. Then the media reported on the story and said that Eduardo must have been kidnapped because he had made enemies. They said he was probably dead by now. Which at this point, Jane was angrier than she ever was. And friends started to talk about Eduardo in the past tense, as if there was proof that he was dead. Kids traded stories on the playground about his body being found in a plastic bag. And they told Jane's children that even if their dad came back, he would probably have to live in a mental institution. When the kidnappers called, Jane started crying and screaming at them on the phone. Once, when they hung up on her, she threw the phone across the room and smashed it. Eduardo's messages got more desperate, saying things like, I need you. Please help me. I can't take it anymore. All the while, Jane was quietly going through her own life-threatening crisis. When Eduardo was taken, she was in remission from stage 4 inflammatory breast cancer. As the stress of the kidnapping continued, she had a sinking feeling that the cancer was back. Whenever she got the chance, she traveled to the U.S. to meet with her oncologist and get tests done. She didn't tell anyone. That would make it real and she had to focus on Eduardo. After her stunt with the moving truck, the kidnappers started to soften a bit on the ransom amount. Instead of millions, they now wanted hundreds of thousands. It was still way more than Jane had, but it was progress. And she thought maybe if she asked enough people, she could raise the money from her friends. So she asked everyone that she knew. But most people never returned her calls. Because, I mean, that's a pretty dangerous thing to get involved with. Eduardo's adult children gave what they could, but they weren't wealthy either, and it just wasn't enough money. Then Jane was sent two guardian angels. Two people that she had never asked for money stepped up and wrote her large checks for the ransom. They refused collateral or plans for repayment, and the only condition was that they both remain anonymous. The final ransom amount was never disclosed to the public, 
but it was a fraction of the original demand. The kidnappers accepted this amount, and seven months after Eduardo had been taken, they agreed to let him go. On January 4, 2008, they sent her a message with instructions. She was to pay them with unmarked $100 bills, and she had to get the money in secret. So Jane went to the bank and filled a bag with money, and when she left, she had to pretend that the bag wasn't stuffed with cash. She stopped and chatted with friends and even set the bag down casually. She was channeling her experience as an actress, playing a part in a movie she couldn't escape from. The agent refused to allow her or any family member to deliver the ransom, though. So two brothers who worked on the ranch volunteered. The kidnappers agreed to collect the ransom from them, and they were taken to a hotel in Mexico City in order to wait for the next set of instructions. In the meantime, Jane had demanded proof that her husband was alive. So the kidnappers sent her a proof-of-life photo of Eduardo holding a recent newspaper. And when she saw this, Jane was extremely shocked by his appearance. His hair was thinner, his beard was grayer, and he had lost a dangerous amount of weight. She had to look at the photo for 15 minutes before she could even verify that it was her husband at all. The brothers waited in the hotel for two days before an email was sent with more instructions. It was winter at the time, but they were told to go to a specific address wearing summer clothes, and they had to mark their car with a letter T in duct tape and were warned not to bring any weapons or cell phones. The address, though, was to a fried chicken restaurant, and they found a note taped to a payphone outside the restaurant. And for hours, they were sent all over the city, retrieving notes and following instructions. The final note included the proof-of-life photo of Eduardo with his head cut out, and the note said the person they were meeting would have the missing piece, and this person would be waiting for them at the end of a dark alley. When they pulled up to the meeting spot, the older brother got out with the bag of money and he walked cautiously down the alley and disappeared. The younger brother waited for hours, but he realized that the kidnappers must have taken him. And what's weirdly creepy about this was that there was actually a police car parked nearby, almost mm-hmm. watching this whole transaction go down. The younger brother was terrified, obviously, because his brother didn't come back. And he contacted Jane and told her that they took the money, but they took his brother as well. And he didn't know what to do. It's so annoying. It's just like, yeah. oh my God. That's the risk with the ransom. Like the whole idea of paying a ransom is like, mm-hmm. it works in theory, but you're dealing with criminals that want to extort you for as much money as possible. Yeah. So they're not playing fair at right. all. Right. No, just because you uphold your half, <sighs> there doesn't mean they're going to hold up theirs. So now someone else has been taken to. Yeah. And the cops are watching and they won't do anything because right. nope. they don't want to get involved in any way. And they're probably exactly. paid off or right. they're oh, even yeah. involved with this organization for all oh, we yeah. know. So. Mm-hmm. The AFI agent told him to keep waiting. Several hours later, he was told to go back to the hotel room and stay by the phone. 24 hours after delivering the ransom, Jane finally received an email and it said they would release her husband. And once Eduardo was freed, he'd have to pay more money to get their ranch employee back. No one had predicted this would happen, not even the agent. By this point, he was like a member of the family, and the brothers who volunteered to go do this were his friends. And throughout this whole process, the agent had stayed calm. But after this news from the kidnappers, Jane's stepson found him alone in a room crying. They were devastated that someone else was kidnapped, and they still didn't have Eduardo back. Jane was told her husband would be released within 48 hours after they received the money. But she didn't believe it. She thought they might just kill him and be done with it. Two days after the drop, they gathered for Fernando's 13th birthday and quietly ate cake at what might have been the world's saddest celebration. When Fernando blew out the candles, his wish 
was for his dad to come home. Before we get to how the story ends, we're going to take one more ad break and we'll be right back. So by January of 2008, Eduardo was struggling to stay alive. His spirit is crushed. His body is weak. He's sick from being injected with blood that isn't even his type. And he knows that the only thing that's keeping him alive at this point is the idea of getting to see his wife and children again one day. Around 4 a.m. on the morning of Fernando's birthday, January 24th, Eduardo was pulled from his wooden box, and he actually thought they were going to finally kill him. They shaved him, dressed him, put him in a car, and he was brought to another location in order to stand facing a wall. A voice told him to start counting. He counted to 200, and when he turned around, he was alone in a cemetery. They had put some change in his pocket and handed him a yellow and black lunchbox that had an apple and a hard-boiled egg inside. All he could do was start walking, and this was the first time that he had walked in over seven months. So his legs are weak, his whole body is weak. And as cars passed by him, he tried to flag them down, but no one stopped. He was emaciated at this point. He was unsteady, barely able to move. And he probably looked like he was drunk or on drugs. So it was no wonder no one wanted to pick him up. He walked until he finally reached a bus stop. And an old man told him that this bus would get him to the ranch. So he waited. Meanwhile, Jane and the kids are at home. And suddenly Jane looks out the window and sees a man walking towards the house. At first, she didn't recognize him. She thought it could be one of the kidnappers maybe. But as she watched, she realized it was Eduardo walking towards their house. How surreal. I look up. And there's a man standing there. And at first I didn't know who it was. I didn't even recognize my own husband. So she sent the kids to the back room and rushed to unlock the door. Her mind was just racing at this point. And when she opened the door, her husband was standing in front of her after all this time. But he had no expression on his face. He didn't smile. He didn't even speak. He had been gone for 225 days. He weighed just over 80 pounds and was incredibly week. Later, his doctor said that at this point, he was near death. It seemed like they waited until he was going to die before letting him go. He was in late stage starvation. He had liver damage, three broken ribs, a concussion, and severe stomach infections. Plus, from all of the music that was being blasted into the box, he had lost 15% of hearing in his right ear. Thankfully, the kidnappers hadn't really injected him with HIV-infected blood, though. He hadn't seen himself in a mirror in seven and a half months, but he couldn't stand to look in the mirror. He couldn't stand to look at his body. He was just bones and skin. So Jane helped him into the house, and he wasn't smiling because it was too hard for him to use the muscles in his face. That's how weak he was. He wasn't talking because that took too much energy. And when he tried to speak, he could only whisper. She put her arms around his frail body, kissed his face, and told him over and over again that she loved him. And he whispered back, I love you. He was so cold, it felt like he was already dead. He told her that he was hungry, and he had been dreaming of her banana pancakes the whole time that he was gone, that you know, he was hoping one day he would make it back to her and be able to have those pancakes again which is the sweetest thing I've ever heard. So Jane got to work right away on the pancakes. She got him eggs and bananas and made sure that he had plenty of liquids. She called their doctor and psychologist and told them that Eduardo was home. 
she knew that he had a long recovery ahead and she had no idea what he had really been through at this point. But for now, all she could do is focus on making sure he was fed and comfortable. And when he was ready, she helped him put on clean clothes and his favorite cowboy hat and bandana to hide some of his frailness. Jane went to get their kids and got to finally tell them that daddy's here. She told them that he looked a lot different. He's very skinny and has lost a lot of hair, but with time, he will be back to his old self. And before she brought them in to see him, she warned them to be careful because he is so fragile. But they hugged their father as carefully as they could, as if he was an elderly person with brittle bones and thin skin. Fernando had truly gotten his birthday wish. It's really amazing that he came back on his birthday. At first, Naya didn't even believe that this was her dad. She thought her mom literally hired an actor to play him. It took several hours of slowly giving Eduardo food and liquids before he had enough strength to speak a little bit and smile at his kids. But their nightmare wasn't over. Shortly after Eduardo made it home, they received another email with more demands this time. The kidnappers had their employees still, and they said that if they didn't get more money, they would kill not just the employee, but their whole family, kids and all. So Jane and Eduardo went to Mexico City to be debriefed by top officials. At this meeting, they were told that they had to leave Mexico. It was too dangerous for them to stay there. They were given 48 hours to pack up what they could and flee the only home that their children had ever known. They left behind most of their possessions, closets full of clothes, furniture, and all of their pets. They left behind their whole life. It's crazy that Jane, like when Eduardo finally got home, she's like, oh, this is, you know, Mm -hmm. all over now. Finally, we can move on. But yeah, nope. Now they're threatening to kill everybody. But at least at the end of the day, she has him. And that's something I don't think she ever knew if she would get to see. I mean, that's just so amazing. So I think that that new sense of hope kind of gave her the strength to keep on fighting. Right. And she explains in interviews how as she fed him and got liquids into him, he slowly started becoming himself. Like his soul was slowly filling up back into his body. Yeah. So they moved to Jane's mother's house in Virginia, and they were promised that the men who did this would be caught and they could move home. But that never happened. They had to stay in America. Eventually, they settled in Maryland and made money on real estate rent while they recovered together. Their kids were born and raised in Mexico, so they had to practice their English. Eduardo was working through his trauma and therapy and slowly making progress. Their ranch employee was held captive for two and a half months. Then, for no apparent reason, they decided to let him go. No ransom had even been paid. The authorities in Mexico made no arrests in this case. And shortly after getting her husband back, Jane got devastating news. Her cancer was back, and it was terminal. And we were talking about this earlier, just the three of us, and how we think, you know, maybe it's possible that she, it came back because of all the stress. Can you imagine the stress that she must have been under especially thinking that like her her the love of her life is gone and Mm -hmm. she's doing this for seven months yeah she doesn't know if she's ever gonna see him her kids or she's worried about the kids like like they're gonna come back for the kids like there are so many things that so many things that he's being tortured exactly so i mean the possibility of the cancer coming back due to stress is Mm -hmm. i mean i Stress takes a toll on the body. And just to think after all of this, after everything they've been through, they're finally starting to put their lives back together and her cancer comes back. That's just, that's so unfair. Why do things like this happen? Why? So for the next six weeks, she was struggling to 
find her spirit again. She was so tired from everything that they had been through and she just wanted to give up. And now she had to fight cancer. But just like she had done in Mexico, she ended up pulling herself together with the support of her family and kept living. Over the next four years, she and Eduardo became passionate advocates for victims of Mexican kidnappers and their families. They traveled to Washington, D.C. and met with members of Congress. They were honored by President Obama at the Spanish prayer breakfast at the White House. They fought to raise awareness and demanded that authorities in Mexico and the United States do more to deal with this issue of organized crime. I agree. Yeah, I think we all do. uh, It's just hard because it's like it seems like the Mexican government wants to do that. But every Mm -hmm. time politicians try to do that, like the organized crime groups like shut it down and, and politicians get killed. I mean, it's just crazy. It's, it's one of those, they're just so powerful. It's so messy down there that it's like, I don't even know what, what you can do. And, and the United States can't just go in and like intervene in another country where, you know, yeah. it's, it's Mexico's job to mm-hmm. fix this problem, but it just seems like, will they ever be able to? Yeah. It sucks because like the cartels in Mexico and politicians, they've, like it's it is common knowledge that they do work together. So it is like a conspiracy that over the in Mexico the cartels and politicians work together. Like yes. they just do. Like everything mm-hmm. over there is all for money. It's all for money. It's all to get all these cartels up up higher and just to get all the the money they can. You know what I mean? They don't yeah. care about the citizens and it's really sad. Like I've seen it firsthand. Like I've seen things that are like really, really traumatizing. Yeah, I know. You've um, been so traumatized by what you've seen. Yeah, like at, especially in Juarez. Like Juarez yeah, is I've I been have, to Juarez and I had traumatizing experience there and I didn't see anything like really graphic but I remember seeing cartel members just on the streets with machine guns, skeleton masks, like mm-hmm. yeah, just, just walking it's around. It's scary and I have my my aunt, she's a my like my first aunt um, she's a teacher out there and she was pulled over by a cartel and they like took her, they literally stole her car, her money. They stole oh, everything from God. her and they left her on the road. Jesus. They like, took literally everything. Yeah. And it was tra- like, she, like after that, they came, yeah. they came here for a few months because yeah. they, like they were afraid. And what can they even do? They, Who can they go to? The police are not going to do anything. Nobody like there's, there's no, news media like there's no media on it mm-hmm. unfortunately like, right not that they don't care but like and, but there's so much of it happening too exactly there's they too can't much that they can't it they all. can't keep up with it yeah yeah it's just out of control and then thinking about how professional these organized groups actually are how good they're getting and their processes they're only getting better and better and harder to keep up with well and like and then i think a lot of it is economic too yeah the, the problem is economic because the you're in Mexico, you, you, the wealth gap is is huge. I mean, you've got very poor, and then you've got the super yeah. rich. And unfortunately, a lot of these cartel groups, they're the leaders of them at least are super rich, mm-hmm. and that you know they have their drug trafficking, human trafficking. There's all these things they make money through, so they're very wealthy, and they have the economic means to pay off police officers, you know, who are you know who aren't making that much, and you know, provide up. They really they it's weird because they uplift people, but in the wrong way, you know, they uplift people organized in their group, but then, you know, they completely Mm -hmm. destitute everybody else. Everyone else is that kind of attitude for yourself. It's really tough because I don't know Mm -hmm. what can really be done because at the end of the day, it does come back to money and the Mm -hmm. fact that 
the economy in Mexico is just not not where it needs to be. And even in places like Cancun mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And who knows how far the corruption even goes. The fact that one of the kidnappers had an American accent is very interesting. You wonder, are U.S. officials getting involved in this stuff? And I bet you anything they are. Yeah. It's, so it's just such like a complicated trafficking issue. Trafficking and stuff. Yeah. Like that, they're so like they make so much money on yeah. that. So much. Yeah. It's a billion dollar industry around. Yeah, the look world. at like El Chapo. Mm-hmm. When exactly. You, when we discovered how much wealth that guy had. Like Oh yeah. Well like yep. in some places they people like praise them. Like some people yeah. love them. Yeah. It's it's really just backwards. I mean, it's like they're living in the eighteen hundreds in, in a lot of places in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Like we, we, we were able to move past that as a country as, as far as like the lawlessness and kind of like every man for yourself kind of attitude seems like it is down there in a lot of places. I mean, we were just down in the Tulum area and that area was an up and coming tourist spot. I mean, they were going to build an airport down there. They were going to build a bunch of resorts and stuff. And, and now we've got two cartel groups, rival groups down there that are just going at it over turf in order mm-hmm. to sell drugs to tourists and stuff. And it's yeah, creating it was, this. It was very scary. We couldn't leave at all. Yeah, we, we tried, tried to, to go down to Tulum and, for dinner. and Yeah, it was blocked off by police, said there was just, yeah, shootings going on. It was. It's very scary. It's really sad how bad it's It is. Gotten. It's a beautiful country. I love, I love the Mexican people. I think they're some mm-hmm. of the most just salt of the earth, best people mm-hmm. out there, so nice, so kind you know amazing culture food but it just sucks that there's this lawlessness there and there's not that trust in the government or the police you know in a way that we have here you know at least here we have a sense of security and safety that when you call the police they're not going to come here and rob you and take everything Mm -hmm. that you have Mm -hmm. um you know it happened obviously it happens here still in in some cases but it's not like it definitely gives you perspective it does of how lucky you are to live if you live in a country that has you know we can call police if we need help and most likely they are going to help us in most cases but anyway jane and eduardo went on multiple tv shows news programs to talk about their advocacy work here's a clip from them from fox news insider in 2011. the the point is that our governments are not doing enough and there are thousands of people suffering as we speak sure and this is where we need a, a lot more intervention from the united states going forward now you want justice. You want to find the guys who did this to you. Exactly. Right, not just for us, but for the other families that are suffering. There was someone kidnapped by this same group just about 10 days ago. So how can we remain silent and not try to get to the bottom of this when between Eduardo's case and the current case, there have been at least half a dozen cases, including a former Mexi- Mexican presidential candidate and senator who paid $30 million in ransom. Jane also co-wrote a book with investigative journalist Mark Ebner called We Have Your Husband. One woman's terrifying story of a kidnapping in Mexico. And she worked with producers to turn it into a Lifetime movie as well. Their story was featured on an episode of Dateline. And while filming, they returned to Mexico for the first time since leaving. It was still dangerous, so they couldn't tell anyone they were coming and hired armed guards to keep them safe during their whole trip. The ranch was just as they left it when they went there. Their dogs even greeted them like they had only been gone a few days. They visited the school and they were shown all the progress that had been made And this was very emotional for Jane. I know she felt like she had missed out on a lot of it because she had to be so focused on everything going on with her husband. It was also Eduardo's 61st birthday. So Jane organized a party with close friends to celebrate. They had a wonderful time. And for them, it was very therapeutic to go back there and feel happy and safe again. 
This was their home and they missed it. But just as they were daydreaming about moving back, they got word that someone had broken into the train car on the ranch property and destroyed everything inside. And this happened while they were there. They were still being watched and they knew they couldn't go back ever. The Dateline episode was the first time that the kids talked publicly about what they had gone through, but they said that the experience brought them all closer together. They were stronger now and they could handle anything as a family. But it turned out that the worst was yet to come. The hardest thing that the family would ever go through as a family was not going to be Eduardo's kidnapping. It was actually going to be losing Jane. She continued her cancer treatments and never talked about her illness unless she was asked. She diligently planned for her children's future without her. I cannot imagine doing that. She bought them each a teddy bear with a voice recorder and left them personalized messages that they could listen to after she was gone. Jane sadly died in her home in Maryland on May 3rd, 2012. She was just 45 years old and had already been through hell and back in her life. She had always believed that the stress of what they went through in Mexico had caused her cancer to return, like we were saying. Jane's friends honored her memory by starting the Jane Rager Memorial Fund at the Waldorf School in Washington, D.C. In early 2020, Eduardo found a surprise from his late wife. It turns out that she had written graduation cards to each of her children, including middle school and high school graduations. In 2020, Emiliano uploaded a video of his father reflecting on his experience and what he learned. Here's that clip. I am so appreciative of everything I was depleted of, like bathing, like eating, like the human touch. And more than anything that I learned that in me is the real energy that I don't have to look outside of me in a temple or in a group or in a belief system because in me is that energy that is the source of everything, absolutely everything that we can see. After all of this, the Valseca family wanted justice, but they had accepted that the kidnappers would likely never be caught. Then in 2017, Eduardo got a surprising call. A journalist in Mexico told him that a man had been arrested for a kidnapping, and they were pretty sure it was the same man who had kidnapped him. A group of men had taken a French-American woman named Nancy Michelle Kendall, and to pressure the family into paying the ransom, they cut off her finger, put it in an envelope, and bribed a cab driver to deliver the package. The cab driver was suspicious that someone would pay so much just to transport an envelope, and when he felt the package, it was a strange shape, and so he knew something wasn't right. He decided to call the police, but noticed the man who paid for the delivery was following him. The police told him to pull into a gas station and pretend to fill up his tank. So he did. He pulled into the gas station and the other car pulled in after him. And while he was filling his tank, the police showed up and arrested the man in the other car. And this man was named Raul Julio Escobar Poblete. And Raul was born in Chile and was a lifelong criminal. He had learned the ropes as a member of a Chilean crime organization and later moved to Mexico. He settled in San Miguel under a new identity. He lived in an affluent neighborhood, got married, had children, joined the PTA, and had become a well-respected member of the community. Meanwhile, he and his wife Isabel were living a double life, kidnapping wealthy people for ransom. He and Isabel were both arrested on May 30th, 2017 for the kidnapping and mutilation of Nancy Michelle Kendall. He was sentenced to 60 years in prison in Guanajuato, 
his home country of Chile is still fighting to extradite him so he can be tried for the crimes he committed while he was there. In November 2019, Eduardo went with Dateline to visit Raul's properties and learn more about the man who tried to destroy his life. Over the last 10 years, there had been 10 high-profile kidnappings in San Miguel, just like Eduardo's. And the Mexican authorities believed Raul was behind all of them. Because after he was arrested, the kidnapping stopped. Eduardo visited an apartment in a nice neighborhood. After Raul was arrested, he had used this one phone call to call this apartment. All he said on the call was, tell Carlos to clean the box. And one hour later, Nancy was released. Next, Eduardo went to a house in the country. This was where Raul lived his double life. At the time he was kidnapped, no one else lived in the house. And this might have been where he was held. The house had been abandoned for years, and Eduardo walked through the rooms trying to figure out if he had been there before. He found a picture of Raul and his wife in an old electric bill, and Eduardo was shocked. He knew this man. He was a parent at the Waldorf School, a trustee and the PTA chairman. Wow. How crazy is that? Although his name was Ramon Alberto Guerra Valencia and the assumed identity of Raul Julio Escobar. But the connection got deeper. This man's stepson was dating Eduardo's granddaughter, and she had spent time with their family and really liked them. As a trustee and PTA chairman, he had access to personal information about Eduardo and Jane, and he had used this information to befriend them and then tried to exploit them. Eduardo had been tortured nearly to death, not by a stranger, but by a friend. Not unbelievable. God. How much that would fuck you up after all of that to know it was someone that you knew the whole time. I wonder if like maybe he didn't say anything like while he was held because how did he not recognize his voice? Right. Because right. Because like he he would have like had a recognize if that was a friend and uh, such a close person Mm -hmm. at the school. He would have recognized the voice. So maybe makes sense why he would do handwritten notes only for communications. Yeah. It's horrible. It's crazy. And that's why that explains the pillowcase thing. Yep. Because they would have known. They They'd don't want to like, see him. They don't want them to see him. Yeah. They were going to try to keep it completely anonymous the entire time. Because they knew him. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Another one of Raul's accomplices, Ricardo Palma Salamanca, was arrested in France on February 16, 2018. Ricardo had been convicted of assassinating a Chilean senator in 1991. Five years later, he escaped prison on a helicopter and resettled in Mexico, posing as a photographer and running an art gallery. After Raul's arrest, he fled to France, where he is still being held, and Chile is fighting to have him extradited, just like Raul. Some of the people involved in Eduardo's kidnapping and torture are still out there, and may never be caught. The family's ranch is now owned by developers who are splitting the property into 16 new home sites, and the Waldorf School has been relocated. And now it's almost as if the Valseca family had never even lived there. That's seriously one of the saddest stories I've ever heard. Just the twists and turns. Oh, my God. Like, wow. All, just their life changed in a split second. Yeah. Just and the leaving fact, the school yeah. and... Oh. Their whole life path was completely diverted mm-hmm. because of Raul and this whole... And it probably made Jane sick. It's just <sighs> ruined their lives. It's the saddest Seriously, thing. Seriously, these guys should, should be in prison forever. But it's Terrible. amazing what you know, Eduardo's doing now trying to fight for other people. Yeah. After what he's been through. Seriously. You know, that's that's true resilience and extremely impressive. And he's definitely carrying on the legacy of Jane and her 
strength and her will to fight. Absolutely. No, I think that's like the best thing they could do at this point yeah. is just keep telling their story and bringing awareness to this issue. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be so careful, man. You do. But I mean, even in this case, like how could have any of, how could this have even been avoided? No, this guy knew, like knew everything mm-hmm. about them. Mm-hmm. Honestly, this case just leaves you feeling speechless. It's just overwhelming to think about what this would be like and that there's still so many people going through this exact same scenario or something similar every day. You know, there's people that are living with this as their reality, thinking about what could be happening to their loved one, trying to get them back, not being able to get help. And luckily, these people had some money. You know, there's a lot of people who have kidnappings occur where they are not able to do anything about it. And they have to basically just... They don't get to tell the police. They they have to just move on with their lives and hope the person will be returned because what else can they do? And they're lucky if they're able to get get, get out alive. They're yeah. They're lucky yeah. if they can't do that because well, right. Yeah. Most of the times, I mean, most of the times they don't get out alive. Like no. they nobody their family just doesn't know what happens. Yeah. They don't have any answers and it's devastating. Like nobody should have to go through that and it sucks that they're that they don't have help. Yeah. Yeah, that like there's a, no one to turn to. Right. Well, like the L.A. Uh, firefighter mm-hmm. who was found dead, his remains were found. And he has a whole family. His daughters were like, you know, out there trying to like find their dad. And That's so awful. He was literally just kidnapped and for, for money and for his possessions, his car, his motorcycle yeah. and murder. I mean, now it doesn't even see, it seems like the likeliness of you being returned safely is slim to none. It's just crazy how much crime just goes unsolved. It's honestly amazing that Eduardo came back alive. Yeah. Especially after just being d- dumped off in the desert, like <laughs> being tortured for seven yeah. months. I'm surprised he was even able to make it back to his house on his own. I mean, seriously, you know, he could have been, you know, confused and not even known where to go. I mean, so many things could have happened, but it seemed like he was psychologically able to keep himself you know, in a somewhat of a good space mm-hmm. to the point where he, you know, because yes. like this type of environment for some people literally drive you into, yeah. you know, psychotic episode or, or just, you mm-hmm. know, you just develop mental illnesses mm-hmm. as a result of being in that, that type of environment for so long. It's like being in solitary confinement, seeing mm-hmm. what solitary confinement does to people is scary i mean it absolutely makes people way mm-hmm. worse there's especially in a small box with blaring music 24 yeah, 7 yeah and on light, top of it and a light yeah that's so much how do you sleep abuse. how do you yeah he talked about it how he just had to kind of get into like a meditative state and just tell himself to clear his mind control your thoughts you're bigger than this you focus got this. on your family yeah, focus on your family your wife i don't know if i could memories i don't know if i could do it that's just truly unimaginable i can't even the mental picture being in that situation yeah no no i couldn't even couldn't imagine i'd just want to die i'd be like let's get this over with yeah well i'm curious if any of you out there have similar stories or have family members or i mean i'm sure some of them do though because this happens like i said all the time and a lot of it goes unreported so i'm curious to see if you have any connection to something like this happening um, and of course, your guys' thoughts on this case, on the Mexican police, the cartels, these organized crime groups. I mean, what do you guys think about this? How can this problem, can it even be solved? Can we work oh, towards yeah. 
I mean, I don't know if it can at this point. It's oh. just so widespread and so corrupt at this point. But I don't know. I, I want to know yeah. your thoughts. But with that being said, we're going to wrap up today's episode there. Obviously, let us know your thoughts in the comments below. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you're subscribed. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, make sure you're subscribed and following us there as well. But that is it for us today. Thanks again for joining us. We'll be back next week with another one for you. But until then, keep on taking your mind a mile.